Welcome back, friends. You're listening to Parenting for the Culture. I'm your host, Sharice Sims, and this is the Black Love Podcast Network. As always, I like to start with the peak and pit of my day. Uh, The pit of my day is that my children stole the chocolate cake that we had. We had chocolate cake for my twin's birthday yesterday, and little hands kept dipping into the extra cake that I had planned to eat at midnight tonight. So I stole the cake, and it's with me in my car right now. Uh, The peak of my day is, as some of you know, my father-in-law had suffered a stroke a while ago, and he's been pretty nonverbal over the past two years. Uh, However, today we had a very long conversation with each other, and he was telling me about his siblings and where they live and how to get to their house because he wants to visit them, so he gave me directions (laughs) to take him to visit his siblings. But it was really great being able to sit and talk with him for a while and just have Uh, you know, a good conversation with him and see his healing come about. So that was definitely the peak of my day. So let's jump into it. Today, I want to talk about um, children's development and how do I recognize when my child is developmentally where they should be? How do I recognize when my child needs support? And how do I recognize if my child is gifted and excelling? So Let's talk about it because this is actually something that I deal with in my own house. Now, I am an educator, so I'm very well acquainted with the ages and stages and what to look for with children. Um, I also know that there are a myriad of things that kind of play into their development. So for instance, let's talk about my six-year-old first. Uh, My six-year-old is the one who I've talked about that has eczema, really, really severe eczema. So it affects her sleep. Uh, It affects the way that she eats because her diet is related to her eczema. Although I don't know how true that is because we've tried very hard to practice all different kinds of diets and she still has eczema. Um, But for a long time, I've seen, you know, behavioral issues with her where she might get extremely upset that I've talked about on the podcast before. Y'all remember that it's not fair episode. If you didn't listen to it, go back and listen to it. But I've, I've experienced very like, very big emotions with her, which sometimes might make me think maybe we need extra support. But my first thought was always, I wonder how much this has to do with her eczema. Because if we look at children's needs, which we've talked about before, sometimes it's just like, if we're not meeting their foundational needs, their need for good food, their need for sleep, their need for safety. Uh, And y'all can look up Maslow's hierarchy of needs if you want to. They're listed right there, right? Talks about foundational needs of needing a place to sleep, needing good food, needing a safe place. Safe place not meaning you don't have bars on your window. A safe place meaning you know you can go to your parent when you're in hurt, harm, or danger, or when you're sad, And when you're happy and all those things. So an emotionally safe place, um, making sure that they're stimulated in their learning and things like that. So when I look at my daughter and I see her having behavioral challenges, sometimes I think, well, okay, her basic needs are not being met, right? She's not getting enough sleep and she's not always getting enough nutrition because of how much we have to avoid so many different foods. So maybe this doesn't have anything to do with development. This is just, we need to get her foundational needs met. I'll wait a little bit longer. I also want to mention that even though I'm an educator, it would make sense that as an educator, I would be very quick to take my child to the doctor and say, assess them, tell me what's going on. If they have a diagnosis, I want the diagnosis. 
I'm actually very slow to do so. And part of that, I, you know, I know things are changing over the years and we're all getting a little more woke and a little more educated and a little more cultured. But over the years, sometimes diagnoses can block your child in to a certain group. Yes, they do get access to resources, like if children need longer time to take a test or if children need support in the classroom where they have a shadow and someone to kind of help them or they get tutoring hours. All of those things are great, but sometimes they also are not allowed to go into the regular classroom or maybe they have some developmental disorder But they're also gifted. Like a child can actually be both. And sometimes when we get these diagnoses, it it blocks them into just one category as opposed to letting them be all the things that they are and letting them explore the places where they are gifted um, and focusing on those things as well. We're just focusing on where they're developmentally delayed and getting them caught up. So I have tend to stay away from it because of the stigma surrounding it. You know, a lot of times if you say, oh, my child is autistic in in our generation growing up, there's a negative stigma around that. Of course, we have people advocating and teaching us and educating us so that that stigma is changing. But that bias of what we've learned is still ingrained in so many of us. So even with me as an educator, even with me as someone who thinks there's nothing wrong with those things, like I have been very hesitant to get my child diagnosed. Plus, I feel like, well, I kind of know how to manage that. Because part of the reason why we would go to a doctor, get an assessment, get a diagnosis is to get tools to support our children. And I know a lot of us are looking for like these overnight tools. Like we're like, oh, my child won't sleep. What do I do? And we expect an answer where now tomorrow night they're going to go to sleep regularly every night. But that's not really the way it works. So sometimes when we have children that have developmental delays, it's not oh, they can't speak, what do I do? And you give them a vitamin and now their speech is great the next day. It's constant you know, work and therapy and practices and things you can do at home. Um, and as an educator, I feel like, oh, well, I kind of already know what to do with those. So I don't really need to get a diagnosis because I already know how to practice whatever it is that I'm seeing the challenge in. So anyways, <laughs> my daughter recently... Oh, y'all. Y'all hear that breath? All you need is that breath. You know what that means, right? Let's take it again. Let me take it again. Oh, Lord. (laughs) It has been rough. It has just been constant. Like one of those, you hear one child crying and they're like, she just pushed me and she just tackled me. And she's like, no, I didn't. I barely even touched you. Or... You tell her she can't have a cereal and we go into the whole episode about this. It's not fair. And the reaction is just so much stronger than what the issue in front of us is. And to me, these are signs that my daughter, I, I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose her. But I did today call to schedule her an appointment to get assessed for ADHD. ADHD being Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. Now, what are the signs that show me this might be something we're struggling with. Well, I homeschool my children. We do our curriculum. We do work. Part of the reason I homeschool is because I want the flexibility of being able to get up and do work outside if we need to or learn hands-on on a field trip. But sometimes we have to sit at the table and do work. And sometimes I 
I'm like, okay, well, we're homeschooling. They don't have to sit at a desk. They don't have to sit at the table. So y'all can sit on the couch or sit on the bed and do your work there if you want to. That works with the three older children. With my six-year-old, regardless of where she's sitting, she is not ever sitting on her butt. (laughs) She is forever sitting on her side with her feet by her ears. I don't know if you all can see that. It's a circle. So she's on her ribs, her feet and legs are twirled over and her feet are by her ears. Or she has moved and she is upside down and her head is hanging upside down and she has her iPad upside down and she's doing her work like that. Or she has done a flip and landed in a handstand against the wall and she's trying to do her work that way. Or she is just steady moving around, like sliding from the couch to the floor, over to the seat, over to the wall, walking around, dancing, snapping her feet while trying to do her work. And it seems like no matter what, she cannot sit her body still. And for me, that is a giant red flag because it's not just that she won't, right? She could realize and she'll even tell me, mommy, I can't, I can't sit still. Today, I kind of challenged her and I said, Eden, we're having a really hard time. I'm getting really frustrated. Your sisters are getting frustrated. Let's just practice and see if you can sit your body still for one minute. Let's just try one minute. I said, all you have to do is sit on your bottom and slowly count to 60. Guess how far we got? If you said 30 seconds, you are wrong. (laughs) If you said 15 seconds, you are wrong. If you said five seconds, you're wrong. Y'all, we didn't make it to one second. She said, okay. She flipped over and she counted to one. I said, nope, you're not on your bottom. And You know, as again, this is one of those things where like I struggle with it, right? I have a certain understanding of children and I have a certain awareness of what's going on. And I realize that, you know, even in classrooms, they're bringing in flexible seating. Flexible seating is those big bouncy balls. It's the different crates. It's the little swivel chairs because we have learned, we society, science, psychologists, whoever, have done studies and learned that children learn actively, that a lot of times they need movement while they're learning. So there have been times where I'm I'm challenging myself. I'm like, okay, well, I know the science says they need to learn and they can still learn while they move. But y'all, this is a lot of moving. This is not... <laughs> This is not your average amount of moving. An average amount of moving would be being able to sit on a swivel chair and swivel your bottom around and move your legs around, but still be able to stay in one place to get your work done for a period of time, even if that's just five minutes or 10 minutes. Average would be being on the bouncy ball and bouncing on the ball while you do your work, but still being in the same space. Seeing a sign of maybe we should get this assessed or further looked at would be standing up, trying to stand up on the bouncy ball, laying down on the bouncy ball, rolling around on the bouncy ball, maybe trying to kick the bouncy ball. It's like it's extra. It's not just little movements. It's not just fidgety. It's a lot of extra movement is what I'm seeing as signs of maybe we need a little bit more support (laughs) because clearly what I'm doing is not working. And now it's affecting other things in the house, right? Like there have been days and several days where I feel like she can't leave my sight if I don't want anything to go wrong. Like if I don't want her to hurt somebody or if she gets frustrated, she might throw something at someone. That's another red flag is like impulse control. Now, 
impulse control happens at the top of the brain. That's something that they're going to be working on, honestly, until they're about 25 years old. That's why you see car accidents with teenagers because they're driving fast. They're not thinking about things. This is why we see stupid mistakes with young adults because we still are gaining control over our impulses even till 25 years old. So again, this is one of those issues where I kind of hesitate and take my time to be like, is this a developmental issue? Some children take longer to develop than others. And that's actually something that you want to think about is a lot of times when we do get a diagnosis, sometimes that can be and feel very hard for a parent. We think that, oh, my child is doomed. But usually it just means that the development is going to take a little bit longer. I had a parent recently ask me, like, how do I know when a tantrum is too long? Generally speaking, I mean that to say generally, right? I'm not giving you anything that if your child is or is not doing this, that means that there's something wrong and I should see a doctor. But generally speaking, children have tantrums, children between the ages of like zero and three, almost four years old, they'll have a tantrum that lasts two to five minutes. If their tantrums are starting to last past five minutes, that is something to consider. It is something to note. It is something to ask your pediatrician about. If their tantrums are very frequent, that is something to note. It is something to ask your pediatrician about. And when I say note, make sure that you can note it as detailed as possible. Because what professionals end up doing is, this is in my experience, y'all. This is not this is not anything statistic, nothing like this. This is in my experience from myself and working with other parents where as a teacher, I can recognize certain things and I say, you know, I think you should talk to your pediatrician about this. Um, see if maybe you can get them assessment. A lot of times pediatricians will just think you're just being a worried mom. Like, oh, your mom, you're just worrying. This is your first time having a child. Don't worry about it. They're fine. Your pediatricians spend five minutes with your child in the office and they don't necessarily see the things that trigger your child in the office. So even me taking my six-year-old, if I take her for a general, you know, uh, a physical and her immunizations and a regular checkup, she's going to sit in the seat and she's actually not going to sit. I already told y'all she moved around, but that's not going to look awkward to the pediatrician. He's going to be like, oh, it's a six-year-old in my office. She's moving around. Sounds right. When he tells her to sit down, she's going to sit down. Now, one of the things she's going to stay seated because she's wondering what he's going to do. She's kind of interested. So she's stimulated and engaged. So to him, this looks like, oh, she's sitting. She's fine. She's good. I hear what you're saying. She's a little active, but you know, maybe she's just a kid that's a little active. That could very well be true. For me, having seen hundreds of active kids over the years, I know that there are active kids who you can, you know, play around and find some tools and find something that kind of keeps them engaged or find a solution like a swivel chair or a bouncy ball that allows them to get the right amount of movement out and still be able to focus. Then you have children where it just seems like there are few to little tools that allow them to sit down and focus for a short period of time, whether that's five minutes, 10 minutes. Um, And rule of thumb, typically children are going to focus, I think it's like a minute per year of age. So if they're four years old, they should be able to sit still for about four minutes. If they can't make it to four minutes, note that. (laughs) Again, not saying there's something wrong with your child, just saying, note that. If your child is six years old, 
They should be able to sit and pay attention for six minutes. If they can't make six minutes, note that, right? As they get older, obviously their attention span grows. But these are, you know, these are just different things that I notice. I, I think I shared before that sometimes she has kind of really big expressions when she doesn't get her way. And a lot of times I think, oh, maybe she's hangry, maybe she's tired. But I'm just noticing that with all the tips and tools that I have, with all the resources that I have, none of them are really working. And the only thing that seems to be working is me staying by her. And that's not realistic. That's not realistic. So at this point, I needed a second opinion <laughs> who, to be honest, uh, I, I already have my mind made up. So if they don't give me like what I'm looking for, I'm going to be like, okay, I need a third opinion. Because y'all know that sometimes... The doctors don't listen to us, which goes back to my point of like, note everything as detailed as you can. If you took your child, if you're playing outside and they wanted an orange for a snack and you didn't have an orange, you only had apples and they took the apple from you and threw the apple and said, I don't want an apple. I want an orange. And then they fell out on the floor. Go ahead and look at your watch. See what time it is. And then work through the tools. I see you're angry right now. Whatever scripts you've been studying on Instagram and whatever else, try all those tools. Note how they're responding. When you go to the doctor, say, hey, on Monday, this happened because of an orange. The tantrum lasted for 12 minutes. Nothing seemed to work. Then later again on Thursday, we had this happen over this issue. You got to really paint the picture for them because a lot of times things will go missed because they just don't believe us. They think we're worried parents. I have had that experience with many children that have come through my school where at two years old and three years old, I, the teacher, could see that there were signs that there was a developmental delay or something else that was going on that needed support. And for years, the parent would take the child in and say, can we get an assessment? Can we get this? And for years, we're ignored. Literally, I can name you five. I'm not because I'm not going to put their business out there. But I, off the top of my head, I could name you five people that I know personally who for about five years their parents were ignored and told that nothing needed anything extra. Nothing was wrong. They, they, their concerns were not valid and come to find out their child was either on the spectrum or their child had ADHD or their child had dyslexia and these different developmental disorders, delays, whatever you want to call them can show up in so many different ways. I mean, even dyslexia, like if your child is struggling in school, but they can't recognize it, um, as being that, sometimes that shows up as behavioral issues. And so now you're thinking, oh, I got to take TV away. I got to punish them. I got to ground them. We got to do extra whatever. And it has nothing to do with behavior. It has to do with the fact that they're dyslexic and they're frustrated because their work is frustrating them because they don't understand it. So I don't know if that was even in line with what I was saying. But anyways, it brings me up to a, a different thing with my son. I have twins, boy and girl, Daniel and Matilda. Very cute. They just turned four yesterday. Uh, and it has been so much fun to watch a boy-girl set of twins because it's just been really, really fun watching how differently they develop and who does what first. And it, it's just such a testament to like children being uniquely them <laughs> and children being whoever they're going to be and children all growing and developing at different rates. Like, I feel like Daniel was on a scooter, scooting around the backyard, going fast, while Matilda was still trying to take her first couple of steps. Like, they were probably a little over a year. And Daniel, his 
gross motor skills, his physical development, he had that down. Yet, Matilda was like talking to us and having conversations and asking us how we were while Daniel was still kind of speaking like Charlie Brown parent language where everybody was kind of like, what did he just say? If y'all don't know that reference in Charlie Brown, the parents were always in the background going womp, 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 womp. So it was like Daniel would say things and nobody understood him. I did because I'm his mama. Um, And Matilda was very articulate and you could hear her very clearly. So they just developed very differently. With Daniel, I could tell that his speech was a little bit delayed. How could I tell? Which actually that was pretty, it was a little bit hard for me because I think all of my children were early speakers. They all had a lot of words by two years old. They all spoke very clearly. So part of me was fighting the whole don't compare him to his sisters because five people is not a good measurement of what average should look like, especially when you're raising six geniuses. I mean, everybody's above average, so we definitely can't go by that scale. But when he was two years old, he had, you know, a few words and they were very jumbled and very slurred. And so for a period of time, it can just look like, oh, he's two and not a lot of people understand two-year-olds. But I could kind of see that his speech was delayed. Um, based on the hundreds of children that I've worked with. And how do we know what's average? How do we know what's not? How do we know if they're hitting the developmental milestones? I mean, usually if you're taking your child in for a general checkup, they're going to ask you to fill out that little form that says, how many words is your child saying? Are they yet saying two and three word sentences? Um, So note those, like look at those and kind of take a screenshot, take a picture if you want while you're at the doctor's office. You can even Google it. What are the speech and language milestones for my child at two years old, three years old, whatever it is, because they give you quick and easy ways that you should know if your child is putting together four and five word sentences, they're good. If they're still saying one word sentences, we got to work on it. Um, So with my son, he was speaking and he was speaking a lot. And one thing that I did learn is that one of the biggest things that you want to worry about with speech delays is their confidence. If children are struggling to speak and they're constantly getting the, what did you say? I didn't understand you. Ooh, child, I don't know what you're saying. Their confidence starts to get chipped away at. And so they won't even continue to try to say things correctly because now they're insecure about their own speech. So for Daniel, I never wanted him to become insecure. And I can tell you that worked very well. (laughs) The boy talks a lot. I don't always know what he's saying, but he's very confident in his ability to speak. And he just knows he is saying what he's saying and that you are the problem that he don't you don't know what he's saying. So with him, we always kind of developed his confidence. I would always just kind of slow him down and I would say, can you say it again? But a little bit clearer and with your more powerful voice, um, I would tell him to like pause and take a breath and then try again. And so he would never get frustrated. Sometimes if you see that your child is getting frustrated that you can't understand them, you might want to seek out additional support because again, it's one of those things that if they're getting frustrated with it enough and the frustration is just like over the ability to tolerate that amount of frustration, they're going to start shying away from trying to speak or trying to work on it. And there are a wealth of things that you know, speech pathologists and people can do where it's easy exercises at home that'll build their vocabulary and their speech. So anyways, with Daniel, I was also kind of slow to get him assessed 
just made an appointment today to get assessed. And part of the reason I was slow is because, again, I was like, okay, well, we'll just work on his security. I know the, you know, I've got this textbook that tells me how to slow down the words and how to get him to practice X, Y, and Z words. Uh, But recently, this is what changed my mind with him and whether or not we should go get him assessed, was that recently I posted a reel talking about how my son, he hates to be called handsome. He really hates it, y'all. I can call him smart. He loves that. He'll say, yeah, I'm so smart. I can call him funny. He laughs and says, oh, yeah, I'm so funny. But if I say, Daniel, you look so handsome, he says, I'm not handsome. I'm Daniel. I'm just Daniel. I just want to be Daniel. Don't call me handsome. And then I'll say, I apologize, Daniel. You're so Daniel. And he goes, thank you. I love you. And then it's over. Right. But he really hates to be called handsome. And uh, shortly after I posted it, a a woman reached out to me. She's a psychologist. We had this whole conversation that was really amazing because her child also has a speech and language processing disorder, right? And there's like so many, so many things out there, like so many diagnoses, so many different things that are happening. It can be overwhelming because you're like, how do I start? Where do I know where to get them assessed? Well, that's where your you know, pediatricians and specialists come into play and come into handy because they do specialize and can hopefully point you in the right direction if you can give them enough information. So I'm talking to her and come to find out that there is a language processing disorder where some children just don't process language the same. So what I'm seeing, and this is my non-psychologist, non-doctoral opinion, but what I'm noticing is that it seems like my son Things that are tangible, you know, if you're funny, people laugh. He gets that. If you're smart, it's because you did something smart. You added something up correctly. You read a book. You spelled your name, right? So he understands, like, he can link these adjectives to something tangible that allows him to understand what it is. Handsome, it's like we all have different opinions of what's beautiful or what's handsome. And there are some children that legit are like, am I beautiful? What does beautiful mean? And even if you were to try try to describe what beauty or handsome was right now, it would probably be pretty hard. It's a very broad thing that really is just a matter of opinion at the end of the day. There is no quantif- quantifier. Is that what I want to say? There's nothing like tangible where you can say, okay, well, if you have two eyes and two eyebrows and a nose and a mouth, that means you're handsome. Now, if I said that to him, then he'd probably be like, okay, I'm handsome. I get that. I see my two eyes, my two my two eyebrows. But anyways, all of that to say that the reason why that makes me want to go get him assessed and actually get a diagnosis and find out what's going on with him is because once I have the diagnosis, I can actually better help him because I can better understand what's going on with him. I can better understand what might frustrate him. I can better understand when he's challenged with something, why he's challenged with it. And then I can work with a professional to get the support I need to help him with those different challenges. So I think that has always been something that has helped me with parenting is understanding what it looks like, understanding that two-year-olds have tantrums. So when my two-year-olds have tantrums, that doesn't bother me. Understanding that children have needs that they need to get met, met, whether that's your physical needs of food, water, sleep, shelter, clothes, or understanding if that's their emotional needs, uh, you know, need for autonomy, safety, play, whatever it is, like understanding that 
helps me to better navigate with children and not get frustrated with the challenging parts of parenting that can be very frustrating. So now I'm at a point where I'm noticing the standard things that I would have used with other children, they are not working with my children, right? My son is now four. So doing our different practices with speech, that's not necessarily working. And what I'm learning is that maybe it's an issue with, again, I'm not a specialist, so I don't know what it's called, but I know that there are children who have issues with the actual way that their tongue curls, right? Like sometimes it's an issue within the mouth or the throat and it causes speech delays. So at this point, he's four, his speech I can understand him, but other people are still struggling to understand him. So I'm recognizing between that and between different things that I say, like you're so handsome and that frustrating him, that we need to get that assessed and need to get a, a little bit more support. Even he he recently with his birthday was like, I'm going to have three birthdays. I'm going to have three birthdays. And I was like, what three birthdays are you having? <laughs> Do you mean you're three years old? And he's like, no, I'm going to have three birthdays. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I kind of thought he meant like three themes because he kept talking about Paw Patrol, Spider-Man and Power Rangers. So yesterday for his birthday, I had Paw Patrol, Spider-Man and Power Rangers decorations. And I was like, I did that. We did the three birthdays. Here they are. And today he said, mom, when are my other two birthdays? (laughs) And I was like, no, no two birthdays. But that kind of goes towards the whole like, I'm, I'm not understanding him all the time and what he's saying. And maybe that was a bad example because maybe it sounds like, no, he told you he wants three birthdays and he's expecting three birthdays, but he's not always able to fully communicate with me what, what it is that he means. I'm not always understanding. So again, it's one of those things where I feel like extra support is needed. And so if you're wondering, like, is my child hitting the milestones? Does my child have a developmental delay? How do I know? One, I would say start with just educating yourself. There are, you know, you could follow me on Instagram. I'm always posting stuff about developmentally where they should be or what you should expect. Um, Follow another, you know, educator or doctor or whoever and kind of learn from these seven second snippets. I say that because it's easy and quick and you're already on Instagram, most likely. Um, But also like Google ages and stages questionnaire. That is something that teachers have used for years. It's something that's used in the doctor's office. It's called ages and stages questionnaire. You can Google it and you can pull it up by age. So they have, you know, zero to three months, three to six months, six months to 18 months, so on and so forth. So you can find your child's actual age group and you can fill it out, look at it and try to think to yourself, like, are they doing these things? And that'll kind of help you get an idea of where they should or should not be, not should not be, scratch that. (laughs) They should be right where they are. But it lets you know if they're where, you know, hitting the milestones or if you might need additional support. One thing that I will say and repeat, because I said it before, all children develop at different rates. So if your child is not yet hitting the milestones, please do not worry. Do not stress out. Do not tell yourself a story of your child is doomed and going to be on the short bus and going to whatever else. Like all of these, even the ages and stages questionnaires, they're averages, right? Like, and they're cultural averages. I will throw that out as well. Like this is not necessarily because American standards said this is so, it is, 
But even when we're looking at, is your child, you know, your six-year-old, are they reading 20 words, let's say, or do they know their sight words? If your child does not know all their sight words, there are other places where they're not even tripping until children are eight years old, right? Like scientifically, they don't necessarily expect children to read fluently until they're eight years old. And some people, some philosophies, even here in America, Montessori, Waldorf, they don't even start introducing like chapter books and stuff until a child is in third grade. So I say that to say like when you're looking at these things, remember that they they are averages, right? A lot of people think their children should be walking by 11 months old, 13 months old. The average actually is not, I think, until like 16 or 18 months old. There are a lot of babies that don't start walking until they're 16 months old, 18 months old. So if your child is 15 months old and they're not walking yet, that's not an indication that something's wrong with them and that you need to get support immediately. But if you are worried, ask your pediatrician. Ask and get an assessment. If your child is four years old and they're not speaking clearly yet, it doesn't necessarily mean that something's wrong, but it's a good indication that you might want to go and seek out support. If your child is five years old or six years old, and they're still having extreme tantrums and a hard time sitting still. Again, it is not an indication. These are all like average things that we look at, but you can definitely always ask and ask for the assessment. Uh, one, one other thing that I'll say is in the realm, I remember a parent asked me about self-regulation and I would love to talk a whole episode about self-regulation, but I remember them asking me at what age should we expect them to be able to, you know, settle, calm themselves down. First of all, I'll say I'm 37 and there are times where I'm not the best at calming myself down. Part of that is the generation that I was raised in and not being taught good coping skills. Some of that is just the fact that I like might want a hug from somebody or might need several moments. Now, me not being able to calm myself down right away is not me flipping chairs, right? (laughs) And falling out on the floor. Um, But when it comes to our children, how soon should they be able to calm themselves down? Sometimes if they are five years old and they're asking you to help them calm down, like, can you give me a hug or can you do this with me or for me? Yes, that's considered co-regulation, but it also is a form of them self-regulating because they're identifying what they need and they're asking you. Uh, But typically speaking, all of these things that we're looking at, like five years old is kind of the standard or the rubric because we want to be able to send our child to school and then be able to manage in school. So obviously, if a child is five years old and they're having uncontrollable tantrums that they just can't come back from for 15, 20, 30 minutes, we can all imagine how disruptive that would be in a classroom. Um, And I'm saying this because this is part of how we like dictate when children are going to be in school at what age and for how long. So if they're having tantrum for 20, 30 minutes, that's going to be disruptive. Most likely, that is not a typical timeline for a tantrum. So the guideline right now for easy rule of thumb is kindergarten. If your child is not using the bathroom on their own and they're about to go to kindergarten, I would look into that. I would say, we just can't seem to get my child potty trained. They're five. 
what what do we do? What do we get assessed? What do we look at? Right? Because at five years old, you want them to be able to go to the bathroom and not have accidents on themselves because now they're at school. They don't have the same amount of support and assistance that they did in preschool or at home. If your child is five years old and they can't sit still, that would be disruptive in a classroom. So all of these kind of skills that we hope they would have to be able to function in a kindergarten classroom, like that's kind of just my rule of thumb rubric of like, if by five, and I'm not saying wait till five, because for sure early intervention is important and it's a thing. But if you have waited and they're five and they're having these things where you're like, man, I can't even imagine how they would be in a classroom or they're four, right? They're getting ready to go to kindergarten. Like definitely get it looked at, definitely get it assessed, check in with a doctor, get a second opinion um, and check out those ages and stages. Check out those different things that you can download from teacherspayteachers.com or that you can just Google and ask your child's teacher. If your child is in daycare or preschool, I really hope that they are doing conferences with you and they are doing assessments with you um, and showing you where your child is at. Write this down, y'all, because these are things you can Google too. You want to look at where they're at socially and emotionally. You want to look at their fine motor skills. You want to look at their gross motor skills. You want to look at their speech and language development, uh, their practical life skills. And I'm sure there are more, but those are the five that I can come up with off the top of my head. These are all things that you can Google. What should my child's social emotional development look like at three years old? What should practical life skills look like at four years old? These are things that you can look at to try to see if your child might need more support or not. And the last thing I will say is I strongly believe that your intuition is your greatest gift. If you, the mama, or you, the papa, is looking at your child and feeling like they're okay, they just develop a little slower, they're good, I would believe that. I believe you and I would believe that. If you are looking at your child and you're like, I think we should get this looked at. I'm not sure if this is right. I'm not sure. Don't let fear and doubt of like you just not knowing creep in and allow you to stop and tell yourself that you're worrying too much. Lead with intuition. Believe yourself. You know your child better than anyone else. And you should listen to the intuition that you were given. You are uniquely connected to your child and that intuition is a gift to you. So definitely listen to that and follow up with that. There is no harm in asking and seeking out extra support. And if you don't believe the first thing that you're told, link up with someone else. Ask for a second opinion. Find a parent coach. Read a parenting book. Read a developmental book. Whatever it is so that you can better understand um, what you need to understand to get your child and you the tools that you need to have a little more peace in your parenting. So here's your homework. Your homework is to go to Google and simply Google in ages and stages questionnaire and fill that out and see where your child's at for yourself so you can feel confident and secure that you're doing the right thing. All right, my friends, I got to go to the bathroom and I don't have kids here, so I'm going to use the bathroom uninterrupted. Yay me, new peak of my day. I'll see you all next week. Take care. Parenting for the Culture is executive produced by Cody and Tommy Oliver. Our senior producer is Crystal Hill. Art is by Koi Madison. Parenting for the Culture is a Black Love Podcast Network production.